now will be forever the myth. You're the king of kings, though. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a pecking order. The little peckers never mess with the big peckers. So I'm a rooster, and he's a chicken. This episode of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast is brought to you by our Patreon sponsors. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon sponsor for the Bodybuilding Legends podcast, please go to our official website, bodybuildinglegendshow.com, and in the upper right-hand corner, you'll see the link to becoming a Patreon donor. All right, welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast, where we talk to the legends of bodybuilding, and we also talk about the history of bodybuilding. I'm your host, John Hansen. And on today's show, we have a very special show. This is our sixth anniversary show. I started the Bodybuilding Legends podcast back in July 2nd of 2017. So it has been now over six years since we started the podcast. This is now our 278th podcast. So it is amazing that it's gone this long. I didn't really have a game plan when I started it back in 2017. Seemed like a good idea at the time. Podcasts were not that popular as they are today. But uh, I just thought it would be great to talk about the old days of bodybuilding, which I really love. The 1960s, the 70s, the 80s, what I thought was the golden age of bodybuilding. And so I didn't know how long it would last. I figured it would last maybe a year before I ran out of people to talk to. And here we are six years later, still doing the podcast. So I want to thank all of you guys who regularly listen to the podcast and who have checked out all our old shows and especially for those of you who are helping to support the podcast through your Patreon donations, I appreciate all you guys as well. So thank you for listening to the podcast for all these years, and we will keep it going as long as we can, right? So uh, we still have guests to talk to, and I will keep this podcast going. There's really no other podcast like it to talk about the history of bodybuilding and talk about the old days, the golden age of bodybuilding. And we've talked to a lot of guys that were kind of forgotten in the bodybuilding world. We just did an interview a couple of weeks ago with Gabe Boudreaux, who got out of the sport in the 60s. And so Gabe hasn't been heard from in a long time. So if, unless you're a real history buff like I am and like many of the other people who listen to the show, you may have forgotten about guys like Gabe Boudreaux. But Gabe was around and he was on social media, so we are able to get his interview. So there's a lot of other people like that that I want to talk to. And a lot of other big stars also that I would love to talk to. So hopefully we will make that happen in the future. All right. Well, if you've listened to any of our anniversary shows before, basically what I do is I go back and I find clips of old shows. And I had 277 shows to pick from this time. And I uh, just put little excerpts about 10 minutes long of each show. So I went back all the way to the start, and I looked back at all the other anniversary shows we did, and I made sure I didn't get any clips that I've already used before and didn't want to use the same guest necessarily. So I wanted to use different clips because I've got so much to draw on. We've got so much podcast, so much uh, material to draw from. So I thought I'd bring some different stuff to the podcast anniversary show this week, this year. So uh, this will be part one. We'll probably have a part two, maybe even a part three, because there's so much material and there's a lot of stuff that I wanted to put on the show that I didn't just have time for. So uh, maybe we'll do that either next week or the week after. All right. So on this week's podcast, the part one of our sixth anniversary show, 
course, I'm going to have a clip from Rick Wayne, which was one of our best interviews ever on the Bodybuilding Legends podcast. I finally got a chance to interview Rick Wayne last year. Rick was one of the best writers ever in the history of bodybuilding. He was also a great bodybuilder himself. He won the 1967 IFBB Mr. World Contest. And if you've ever seen pictures of Rick, what he looked like when he competed, he had an amazing physique, incredible. But he's a very intelligent, very outspoken person. I love talking to writers. Some of my best interviews, I think, on this show have been with people who are writers. Rick, Jack Neary, Charles Gaines. I love talking to these guys because they're just so introspective and very articulate, and they're just great interviews. So I love Rick's interview so much that we're going to definitely use part of Rick Wayne's interview on this anniversary special. Other clips that we've got coming up on this anniversary special, I did an interview with Tony Pearson, Tom Terwilliger, and Phil Williams. I believe it was last year. We're going to show a clip from that show where I talked to them about training as they get older. I also did an interview last year with Charles Gaines after his partner, George Butler, passed away, I believe, in 2021. Last year, in 2022, I got to interview Charles, so we're going to have a clip from that. I did an interview with Lee Labrada right when I started the podcast, I believe. It has to be like at least five years old. And so I did an interview with Lee about his whole career. We're going to have a clip from that show. I just got, I just ran into Lee last week at the Tampa Pro where his son, Hunter, won the Tampa Pro, and I got to talk to him. So when I was going over the clips, I said, oh, man, I want to put in a clip from Lee Labrada. Such a great guy. So classy of an individual on and off the stage. So we'll definitely have a little clip from Lee Labradas that we can hear from. One of my favorite interviews ever was Danny Padilla. Great personality, super funny, great insights into the sport, had a fantastic career, and one of the best physiques ever in bodybuilding, let's face it. So we got a clip from our Danny Padilla interview that we did a couple of years ago as well. So that'll be coming up in a second. And then finally, we're going to finish off with Chris Dickerson tribute. So Chris passed away. Um, going on two years now, believe it or not. I think it was also in 2021 at the end of the year in December. So I brought on Boyer Co. and Roy Callender and also Bill Nilon, who is a judge out here in Florida. And Bill was a good friend of Chris. So I brought all three of them on. So I'm going to have some clips from that interview as well. So we can give some tribute to Chris Dickerson, who passed away, like I said, going on almost two years already. All right, so we will get to all those clips in a second. Believe it or not, we are only 12 weeks out from the Mr. Olympia contest. That contest will take place in Orlando, Florida. It'll be, I believe, November 3rd through the 5th. So that's going to be a huge event, of course. I hope to make it out there myself since it's only about an hour and a half away from where I live in Tampa. And this will be the last year. I think it's going to be in Florida because it's going to be out in Vegas for the next four or five years, I heard. So... I definitely want to go see that. This competition is looking really, really incredible for the top spot. That Samson Dowda is looking unbelievable. He's like 330 pounds and he's hard. So the size that these guys can have is just unbelievable. And then you got last year's champ, Hadi Chupin. He will be coming back to win a second title. And then we've also got Derek Lunsford, who lives right out here in Tampa. And he took second last year. And then you got Nick Walker. And you've got Andrew Jack, and you've got Hunter Labrada. So it's going to be a really stacked lineup. So that's going to be exciting. I mentioned last week on the podcast, I have a a transformation, a 12-week transformation program that I'm offering on my johnhansonfitness.com website. So if any of you guys are looking for an excuse to get in shape, 
and you need some kind of motivation, I'm offering a 12-week program where I'll do both your diet and your training, and I will do weekly check-ins with you to make sure that you're making progress. I'm giving $100 off to the uh, listeners of this podcast. So if you're interested, just email me at naturalolympia at gmail.com, and I will show you how to get signed up and just mention the 12-week transformation contest. You can use the code word podcast, and I will give you that discount, give you $100 off for that 12-week program. So if you're interested in that, let me know. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview I did last week with Steve Weinberger, who is the head judge for the IFBB. I didn't get any emails on it, but I hope you guys enjoyed it. I like every once in a while talking to judges. We've interviewed many judges on the show. John Colasioni, several years ago, I interviewed him. He was a judge with the IFBB. Of course, Roger Schwab, we've had on the show many times. I love talking to Roger. He's one of my favorite guests. I also got a chance to interview Winston Roberts before he passed away several years ago. So, yeah, it's always great to hear from these judges, the ones who make the decisions on which physiques win. So it was good talking to a modern-day judge, Steve Weinberger, last week. Steve is now currently still judging all the shows. He's the head judge at the Olympia. He was the head judge at the Tampa Pro. He's a head judge at most of the national-level shows. So it was good to get his perspective on the sport today because, Steve, if you heard the interview last week, is an old-school bodybuilder just like us. He's been around since the 1980s. So he can give that perspective of being around back then to today and see how the sport has changed over the last 40 years. All right. Well, listen, since I don't have any emails, let's get to our sixth anniversary special. This is part one. I'm going to introduce each clip. So we are going to start off with Rick Wayne. This was the interview I've been waiting to do. I bugged Rick for literally three years to do the interview, and he finally gave in, and he finally did it. And we ended up doing a three-hour interview, so it was three parts. Part one of our sixth anniversary, we are going to go to part one of our interview with Rick. So on this clip, Rick talks about Joe Weider and Ben Weider, the difference between the two of them. And he also talks about Arnold and Arnold's relationship with Joe Weider. And the question that Arnold asked Rick way back when he was 19 at the 1966 Napa Mystery Universe, Rick talks about that as well. Here we go. When we were talking about Joe, um, he, I never met Joe, but he must have been a lover of bodybuilding. And like you said, he was trying to make the magazine profitable. So it would, you know, so it would be like a top magazine. But, but, but he really was not into the profitability of the magazine. Ben was. Oh, Joe okay. didn't, I mean, don't forget, um, we went bankrupt two or three times. Oh, okay. That's interesting. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and eventually Ben Weeder had to, had to actually put a, a finance guy in charge. Because mm. Joe didn't care. Joe would spend whatever it took for the magazine. That's wow. all he, the magazines were Joe's business. Yeah. Like, like I, I always said that the, 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 when Joe loses control or whatever of those magazines, that would be the end of his life. I say the same as myself. If I didn't write, mm. I, I probably would have been dead already a long time. Because I've been around a long time. Yeah. Uh, and, and the, but the writing keeps me alive. It keeps my, my, my faculty in shape. I debate people. I, I, I reminisce. You know. But yeah. all of that, that's why I say everything, it's all from bodybuilding. But it's bodybuilding that put me on that platform. Mm. And I think Joe was the same. Without bodybuilding, Joe would have been a guy who dropped out of school at 12. And Lord knows doing what. Yeah, but, the, but those magazines and and, and uh, his love for bodybuilding, his wanting to take bodybuilding to the moon. You know how long 
Ben tried to, to get uh, bodybuilding to be an Olympic sport. Remember that? Yeah, oh yeah, oh, year after year. It was unbelievable, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a story by itself. Yeah. But they had different interests. Mm. Joe was into muscles and his magazine, and Ben recognized the vehicle. Yeah. But, but Ben wanted to, you, you have to have that. Yeah, you have to have the guy watching the box. Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because I always thought Joe was like a, a ruthless businessman. That's the rumor we hear about uh, now. You know, and that, these are guys who talk nonsense. I remember we were driving with Arnold. We went to lunch. Him and uh, another member of Weider's staff, I think maybe his secretary. Mm-hmm. And as we came back from the restaurant and we were right opposite on, on Owen Street, with, uh, the, the Weider building, um, he, he told me he was doing a, a course at UCLA uh, on, on business or something. Mm-hmm. And he said he had to do an essay on the man he most admired and, and, and the man he most um, despised. So I said, well, <laughs> Who is the man you most dis- who is the man you most admired? Arnold admired somebody. Who is the man you most admired? And he said he didn't he didn't speak. He just thumbed in the direction of the building. <laughs> because it was Joe's Joe's secretary driving. So yeah, he, went, yeah. <laughs> he went like this, you know. And I said, Well, who is the guy you most despise? And he went like, who do you think? And he went again. So he, he, the man he most admired was Joe Weider, and the man he despised most was Joe, Joe Weider. Of course, that that was a very strong word yeah, because yeah. because he admired, um, obviously admired Joe Weider. Look what happened in the in the end. <laughs> Joe, he's the one who was there with Betty and and, and all that stuff. Yeah. Talk talk about a tease, God. I have I have I've seen. Um, Arnold reduce Adizella to tears. Mm. I, I, I have heard him tease Joe Weeder about Betty. You wouldn't believe. <laughs> but, but, but again, a fascinating thing because Joe loved Arnold, admired yeah. Arnold, imagined himself Arnold. Mm. But you know who Joe really, really liked? Who? Lou Ferrigno. Oh, really? Hmm. Lou Ferrigno finally did not deliver Joe's aspirations. Yeah. Could not deliver. And Joe Wheeler could not afford not to be very close to Arnold. I mean, Arnold is a, is a personality beyond, uh, you know, all those people who have written about Arnold. I've never really captured Arnold because, yeah. because they, did, they, do, they don't write about Arnold like when he was 19. Yeah. And I'll tell you this, we, I, I think it was a scholar theater in London that uh, the first year he, he, uh, competed for the universe, maybe about 65. Yeah. For the universe. 66. And, yeah. Yeah. And, um, there was a guy called Helmut, uh, Rudmeyer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. He was, he lived, well, he was, he was living at the time in London and obviously was a good friend of Arnold's. And through him, in fact, he said, he said to me, Arnold, do you know Arnold Schwarzenegger? No, I don't know him. I, but he met me at WAGS and he says, he wants to meet you. But I was going to the universe anyway, and Naba Universe had good at a laugh because I, I was not their favorite. Mm-hmm. I, I always criticized Oscar, Oscar Heinz and, and they didn't like that. 
Yeah. And um, but but uh, there was Arnold backstage. Um, he hadn't started pumping up yet and started throwing things at me. For example, I, well, he wasn't proficient enough in English to, to speak English. So he, so Rudmeyer would translate. Okay. So so when I speak, it, I, I I I was speaking English, but imagine him talking in German. Yeah. <laughs> so. He, he, he asked me, Vaya, do you believe a man can get anything he wants out of life? And you know, I, I, I do, or I used to do school motivation speeches in St. Lucia. Mm-hmm. And I always fell back on those little stories. And I said to them, I was very young then, relatively. And so when Arnold asked the question, I said, Nah, I said everybody because it's limits. Yeah, and he said that's not true. Mm. And I said, what do you mean it's not true? Because he says because a man, any man, can get whatever his heart desires, provided he's willing to pay whatever the price. Mm. And we, you know, we wrestled over that a bit, and I eventually had to admit he was absolutely correct. Yeah. And the price may be, in fact, at the schools, I remember one young lady asking me, are you saying that if I went to a a store and I saw this fantastic diamond that that I could not afford, but I wanted it badly, that I should steal it? And I was shocked because that question told me more about the questioner than anything, right. but, it's, but that small island and a lot of insecurities, people are poor and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. So, and not not many opportunities. So that's the kind of thinking you get among young people all too often. Yeah. But it threw me, and I stopped. How do I answer that? Mm-hmm. If that you just said you can get anything you want, provided you want to pay the price for it. Mm-hmm. So she says you were saying to me now that if I wanted this diamond badly enough. And the only way I could have it is by stealing it, that I should steal it. So I eventually said, well, yeah. And I waited. And everybody was going, oh. I said, just so long as you're prepared for the eventuality of getting caught and getting a life sentence. Yeah. Yeah. Arnold lives that way. Right, right. I have to tell you, I learned to live that way as well. Really? Okay. Oh yeah, whatever you want, you can get it provided you put in the time. It's like bodybuilding. Yeah. When I was, I was never what you would call a committed, serious bodybuilder. Mm. I always took long periods away from it. Roy right. Collins would tell you that. Yeah. Because I, because I had other interests. I, I, I used to record uh, um, in England for CBS and so on. So yeah, I, yeah, I read and, that. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I went into the writing things as well, and not necessarily bodybuilding. I wanted to be a writer and so on. So I took time off every now and again from from bodybuilding. But the good genes and the concentration I put in that this is what I never really ate um, like like you imagine m- most champions mm-hmm. eat yeah. okay I believed in in small meals four or five a day I used a lot of dairy interesting enough hmm. today you hear oh no, no. I, 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 I used a lot of dairy I loved yogurt and I loved milk okay I love milk. And 
course, at contest time, I didn't. I, I, I cut yeah. those things out. But while I was training for mass, and I ate almost everything, but in small doses. Yeah. I, would sit, I would sit and eat half a chicken or a whole chicken, depending uh, how. So, as a, but Arnold, on the other hand, was so disciplined. I remember we were having a meeting at Weeder in the UK mm-hmm. at one point. And Arnold came in. He was not the Arnold yet, but picking up. I don't think he had won the universe yet. Okay. Probably it was the year after that. Yeah. And he came out there, and I saw him do it many more times after that. It didn't matter who he was talking to, what was what, what point in the meeting, he would stop. And he would say, I got to eat. <laughs> that is how disciplined this guy was. Yeah. Very, very disciplined and knew exactly where he was going. Yeah. I mean, he knew exactly where he was going. Isn't it fascinating, Rick, that Arnold at 19 asked you a question like that? And then especially when you look at the scope of his life and what he accomplished, he accomplished everything he set out to do more than any other bodybuilder ever has. That, that, that is very interesting. Yeah, at 19, there were other, yeah. there were other similar things that he, you know, he argued on. Uh, he gave me another one, but another example of that, uh, well, it's not so much he gave me another. I've, I, I stumbled on another example of that. Mm-hmm. It was a story in, a, in, a, in a, a journalism magazine of all places. I think Columbia, Columbia Journalism it was called. And all these magazines have disappeared. Okay. And um, there was this guy. What, what is the highest rank in the Army, the U.S. Army? Yeah. Star General, whatever it is. Yeah. And this guy... Eventually retired from the army because he felt that he, they, they, they were they, they were all shafting him and mm-hmm. they wouldn't allow him to do it. So to hit the rank, they were all standing in his way, okay. and he was he was convinced that um, he would never make it because there were so many impediments put in his way. Yeah. And naturally, he found himself checking out a shrink, and he would sit there and he would complain and complain, and the shrink would eventually say to him, "But John, you are to blame." You didn't want to be the colonel badly enough, which is in tune with what Arnold said to me so many years earlier. Yeah. So, so the, the psycho, the, 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 the psychiatrist is saying to him, you didn't want it. Get used to the idea. You're killing yourself thinking you were deprived. You yeah. were the one who stopped yourself. And then one day, the guy is mumbling, and by that time, the psychiatrist doesn't even listen, until he said, they wanted me to kiss ass. And mm. I refused to kiss ass. Right. And he said, what did you say? And he said, they, wa- they wanted me to kiss ass. And I refused. And then this, the guy said, uh-huh. you called it kiss ass. It means you were not prepared to do what it would take right. to get that promotion. Arnold told me that at 19. And right. there and there I'm reading this in an intellectual magazine. You, you know, that... Yeah. We, when we when we want to blame others for our not achieving, it's because we weren't prepared to do whatever it took right. to get what we wanted. Right. And the only way you'll think of, of of the negative is because you you're negative bent anyway. You're screwed up. If the best you can come up with is should I steal it? You know, you, the, the, the hope is that you have a positive mind, and all the images you're going to come up with. A positive images. How much do I have to train? Uh, Arnold would not sacrifice 
I'll work out for, for nothing. Same with me. Yeah. All right. That was great. Always great hearing from Rick Wayne. And I've been bugging him again, guys, just so you know, I've been bugging him to do a part two of our interview so we can talk to him again, because I know he's got a lot more stories to share. So I'll keep after him. And so hopefully we can get Rick on the show again this year. That would be awesome. All right. Our second clip that we're going to play comes from an interview I did with Tony Pearson, Tom Terwilliger, and Phil Williams, all great national and pro-level bodybuilders in the 1980s. Tony won the 1978 AAU Mr. America, and then he went on to become a great pro bodybuilder with the IFBB, particularly in the mixed pairs division, where I believe he was like a five-time champion. So uh, we've got Tony on the show, and then we've also got Tom Terwilliger. Tom won his pro card in 1986 at the MPC Nationals, where he won the light heavyweight class. Tom also went on to be an IFBB pro and competed in the Mr. Olympia and gave some great, great posing routines while he was at the top at the, at the pro level. And particularly in 1989 Olympia, he gave one of the best routines of that night. And then uh, our friend Phil Williams, we've also got him on the show with these guys. Phil won the 1985 MPC Nationals and then he won his very first pro show, which was the 1988 Chicago Pro. So I asked Tony, Tom, and Phil how it feels to be older because now they're all over 60 and what their training routines are like now that they're in their 60s. Here we go. So how old is everybody now? We were just talking about this off camera. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm 59. I just, I'll, I'll, I'll be back. I'm about to lie. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be, I'll be the big 6-0 next year. Phil, how old are you? 62? I'll be 62 in June. Okay. June 3rd, so I'm 61 right now. Okay. How about you, Tony? You just had a birthday? Yeah, January 6th. I'm 65. 65. <laughs> wow, you look great. How about uh, you, Tom? We're all up there in the 60s except you, John. I'm 63. 63. Just uh, January myself, Tony. And I guess, well, what's, what's your birthday? 11th. 11th? That's yeah. my mom's birthday. I'm the 12th. Oh, wow. One day. Yeah. Okay. Well, what are we, Capricorns? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. We, we, we get stuff done. We get stuff done. That's what we do. So let me ask you this, guys. How has your training changed when you got to your 60s? Or or what, what period, what age did it change? Where Did it change right after you retired from bodybuilding? Or what point did you say, okay, I'm not going to lift the heavy weights. So I don't want to hurt myself. Or, or are you still lifting heavy? I'm not lifting heavy. Um, you know, when I was 63, I won the Masters Universe here in Vegas. Mm-hmm. That was a turning point for me because my body was like saying, hell no, this has got to stop. Dehydration, training twice a day. And it, yeah. you know, it, took, it took a lot out of me. And uh, I still managed to train twice a day. But at the end of that, I said, that's it. Yeah. Train, you know, less weight, more reps, protect myself. Just, you know, take care of my health. What happened, Tony? Was your, your joints hurting when you were doing that? Joints was hurting. You got very dehydrated. I was cramping a lot. Mm-hmm. Body cramps um, just um, just wore me out. Yeah. And I was glad that show was over. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Since then, I'm, I'm still recovering from it, really. It just, after you get past 60, this is kind of downhill a little bit. <laughs> right. We know how to train. We know how to use less weight to still maintain what we have. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to get bigger. I'm just trying to hold on to what I have. Yeah. And, and, and the other part, just exercising, just being able to go to the gym and work out. Yeah. yeah. Those days are, you know, squatting and leg pressing, all this crazy stuff. It's, it's done. It's over. I don't yeah. need that. 
you know, guys look at me, oh, he's training with light weights now. Yeah, because I did the heavy stuff when I was 19, 20 through my 30s, you know what I mean? So it's not necessary. I mean, you got to be smart. You got to listen to your body, pay attention. Some exercise I cannot do anymore. Like yeah. uh, presses, pullovers, even dips now. Yeah. So you know, but you find what works. Dumbbell now, when, you were, when you were training with Robbie back in the day at Gold's, you guys were going heavy and fast, right? Yes. That's the problem with training with Rob is the pace. Yeah. That's yeah. the pace. And he's looking at the clock the whole time. So you got 400 pounds and you get about 35, 40 seconds between rests if you're lucky. Mm-hmm. So between sets, I'm down on one knee, gasping. <laughs> he knows the minute he puts it down, there is no talking with Robbie. When, you know, yeah. I lived in the house, we didn't talk. So at the gym, you know he's not saying a word. He just, when he puts it down, you know you're picking it up. Yeah. He was so strict. He goes, give me 12. And he means 12 because if you stop at eight, now you owe me one. Uh-huh. Stop at nine, now you owe me another. So he, discipline, he, caught, you know, he taught me some discipline. 12 means 12, nonstop. And the last rep, it'll be just like the first rep. He's really into form and technique and mm. mental connection. I watched him for a year training in 77 when I got there. And I go, why is he training light? Why is he training heavy? Why is he doing that? Mm-hmm. And when I had the opportunity to train with him, I realized, oh, he's all mental. Mm-hmm. He was deadlifting 500 pounds in front of me. He got it halfway up and he had to step forward. He stumbled a little bit. So he stepped forward halfway up and then he locked it. And that's when I saw in his face, I go, oh, this guy's all mental. Mm-hmm. He's not great. So he could take a lightweight and make his own crawl. <laughs> yeah. Build his, build his chest. So it's not, it's, it's mind to, to muscle connection. That is so true. Yeah, that's when I learned that. You know, I learned a lot from him about form, technique, focus, mental. He would walk in the gym every day, and he wouldn't speak to anybody. He goes straight to the machines because his mind was set before he got to the gym door. Mm -hmm. There was no distraction. You couldn't interrupt him in his workout. There's no way because he was still rising star at the time. You know, he was winning, but you know, he had a lot of tough guys to beat. Yeah, and you know. Lou Ferrigno and all these great, real, real champions. So yeah. we had to really step it to the next level to, to get there. And, and I learned a lot from him that discipline and intensity. If you don't have intensity in your workout, you're not going to grow. You're not going to get that chisel sculpted look. Mm-hmm. It's carved from stone. That's some hard work. Yeah. These guys are big and got all these muscles, but they look soft. Yeah. And a lot of free weights. Robbie didn't use machines. Okay. okay. Deadlifts, T-bar, you know, you name it. He, barbell curls. He would take a 120-pound barbell, curl it 10 times, and hand it to you. So how much rest are you getting? I do my set, you hand it back to him. So it never touched the floor. Yeah. He burned out so many training partners. <laughs> it was drinking alcohol to come down. It was popping pills to come up. <laughs> it's twice a day he's taking you through this just hell. Yeah. But wow. I love him. We used to laugh at each other. We would just smile because you're not going to burn me out. And I'm not going to burn you out. So here we go. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting because, you know, that's a great question about, you know, you know, what it was like training with Robbie. And that was around that time when, when, you know, we, I think all of us, I think Phil, you could t- attest to this and John, I'm sure you can too. At some point we encounter or find a way to attract what we need in terms of a training partner or a mentor in many respects. For me as a teenager, 
and even training here in Long Island. And when I came back later on uh, several years to, to uh, compete in the open class, um, I was training at a, a gym called Future Man. And there were a lot of great bodybuilders there. Steve Mahalik trained there. Tony Pandolfo. There was somebody at Lou Ferrigno would come when he was in Long Island. He trained there. And, uh, and so I connected with – and these guys – like like Tony, I mean, this was the, this was back in those days, you know, in the seventies and and the, the early eighties. But it was serious training, man. Yeah. So in cool. fact, Robbie, it's interesting because you and Robbie, there were there were guys serious in California. But when I went to California, that was one of the things that kind of dumbfounded me a little bit. I'm like, these guys are having fun training. We don't have fun in New York, in Long Island, in Brooklyn. There was no fun in training. It was beat them down. Till he can't come back and then move on to the next training partner. So having a great mentor, like I trained with Tony Pandolfo, uh, Mahalik for a little bit. God, Mahalik was forget Crazy. it. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. I was like, only the only guy I knew that could actually hang with Mahalik with my, my good buddy, John Defendez, who became Mr. USA. Yeah. Well. But I think, I think, I think that's part of what made us champions in many respects sure. was attracting, encountering, hanging with these guys that were so tough. So uh, the best training partner I ever had was a guy named Gary and he was not his favorite saying. And he had these big ears. He was just like more, 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 more. He was, he was a psychopath. And I think, yeah. he really, I think he really had it out for me. He wanted to kill me <laughs> I, I, seriously. And, and, right. and just, and would do things that like completely destroy me, but it was like, I was hung, I was hung. And, uh, and that made me strong. And it's definitely what led to uh, winning the nationals. But just yeah. to answer your question real quick, for me, it was, um, you know, after uh, competing in, in the Olympia a couple of times and, and, and having a short lived pro career, I was mountain biking here in Colorado and I went over the bars mm. at about 35, 40 miles an hour, hit some rocks, broke the clavicle, three broken ribs, compound, oh, wow. fractured, compound fractured the wrist. You know, I was 215, 220 pounds at the time. I really shouldn't have been mountain biking. You know, but I was like, I'm living in Colorado now. I got to have some freaking fun, man. I got to get out there and do some shit, not just be in the gym all the time. And so that really changed things in terms of how I was able to train. I, I had to retire. It was it forced to retirement, uh, but it really changed things in terms of how I trained from that point. It became much more about volume. Mm. speed, intensity. There were other ways intensifying the workouts without having what I have. And that's sort of load I continue to do today at 63. I'm still able to do that. My, my tough ass training partner now is my wife. She doesn't <laughs> let me get away with crap, nothing, you know, just like, I'm like, yeah, yeah. Wait till you're my age. She's like, <laughs> she just blows it off. Like, don't give me that. That's no excuse. So yeah, you more. Still, uh, now. You I'm still train to failure, Tom? Say again? You still train to failure at your age right now? Uh, pretty close. I wouldn't say it's as many sets to failure. Mm-hmm. I would say there's at least one set per exercise or at least one set per body part. That's not, not now. Don't get me wrong. Not Tom Platt's level of going to failure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but certainly for me going to failure where it's just like the muscles not going to get another rep. We'll do a forced rep or two from there. Call it quit. So it's at least one set almost each time I do a, an exercise, three, four sets. One of them will be to failure. Not every time. Okay. How about you, Phil? I know, I know, Phil. You never really went super heavy, even in your prime, right? No, no, never. Uh, I, I trained six days a week from the time I was probably fifteen or sixteen to eighteen. Okay. Went to a Mike Mincer seminar, and that kind of changed everything. I realized I was overtraining, and talking to him, I started training each body part once a week. Mm-hmm. Okay, once every seven to eight days, depending on how I scheduled it. Yeah. And then as I gradually got older in the 20s, every seven to eight days, in the 30s, every 
eight to nine days. And at this point now, let's work up to this point, mm-hmm. I'm every 10 to 11 days. Okay, so the recuperation's gone farther as you got Exactly, older. yeah, of course. As you get older, you need more time to recover. So I'm training yeah. each body part three times a month. Okay, okay. But it's not very heavy. I mean, it's, it's moderately heavy. And I still train to absolute 100% failure on you do. Okay. every exercise that I can. Okay. Absolutely. in safety. Yeah. So uh, uh, what I've done over the years is I slow down the velocity or, or the, you know what I mean? What I'm saying is the, the rhythm of the training. It's very slow, very controlled, full range of motion. Yeah. Uh, a lot of mental training that goes with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting a full contraction, maximum contraction, full extension. Okay. So it's it's real slow and controlled, but it is to failure. Yeah. I got I got I got I got to say something here because I had a chance to train with Phil once or twice. He came out to Long Island, trained at my gym, Maximum out there, and man, <laughs> and this is after he beat me at the Nationals. He was already a, a great pro, and we did. Uh, when he says slow it down, he says I slowed it down. I've slowed it down a little bit. I don't know how you should go any slower. I mean, it was just like <laughs> it was painful. It was just like every rip was like a minute and a half. I was like, good God, I can't. It was. I mean, seriously, it was intense. Yeah. Fraction of the weight I could use. Every repetition, slow, control, peak the contraction, hold that negative. But I was like, good God, I don't think I could do that every day, man. That yeah. was tough. Yeah. yeah, that hasn't changed, Tom. Wow. Still, still the same. Yeah. Can't do it as often. Like I said, each body right. part three times a month. Okay. And after that, it's, it's, it's nothing but recovery. Mm-hmm. It takes How about you, Tony? To recover you- from those workouts. Tony, are you going to failure too? No, I uh, know oh, okay. my body allows me to do that day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, I, and I keep listening to my body talking to me. It's enough yeah. when we're set, done. Don't yeah. put that weight on the bars a little bit too much. <laughs> Back off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a, it's a mind game. Some days I have pretty good days. Then I have a flashback to the old school. I go, don't go there. <laughs> Stay in your lane. <laughs> you know? Right, right. I mean, I miss it. I got one client. He's. Oh, he's timing himself on the watch now. He's a minute, 30 seconds between set, and he is so sure every day. He's like killing himself. I'm yeah. enjoying it because I'm training him, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I go, get off this machine. Let me get some of that. Let me- <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, no, no, I just listen to my body. Yeah. Sure, not heavy. I don't train heavy. You don't need to. I realize you don't really need to. I don't. You built the foundation. Mm, okay. Already there. So you can maintain it without, without going heavy now. Yes. Okay. Yes. You have knowledge. You know. You know what you're doing. Yeah. So yeah. The intensity is a matter right now more than poundage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still holding the intensity though because I can't rest long between sets. Otherwise, I get bored. So yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah about a minute rest between sets. I'm yeah. I'm on. So yeah. All right. This next clip is another one of my favorite guests, Charles Gaines. Charles, of course, was the author of the book Pumping Iron and also the book Stay Hungry, which was a fictional novel that they made into a movie in 1976. And Charles' partner, George Butler, was the photographer for the book Pumping Iron and also the director of the movie Pumping Iron, passed away in 2021. So I wanted to get Charles on the show so we could give a tribute to George. So we talked to him last year, and we will talk a little bit about Charles' relationship with George And we also get into a discussion of posing in bodybuilding. Here we go. Well, first of all, uh, I want to offer my condolences on the passing of your friend, George, who uh, passed away last uh, last fall. 
Um, you guys were instrumental in really helping create the sport of bodybuilding and bringing it out to the general public. So uh, were you in touch with George a lot over the last few years, Charles? I was, John. You're probably aware of the fact that he had had Parkinson's disease for, oh, at least a decade, maybe a decade and a half before he died. Um, And as you know, that's a progressive disease. And the last couple of years, it was tough to be in touch with him because he could barely talk and he was bedridden. And two years ago, we had our house in uh, Nova Scotia and had a good visit with him. And so Mm -hmm. after that, I talked to him for a couple of times. But the last year... Um, he he couldn't he couldn't talk on the phone anymore. Oh really? Wow. Yeah, that's a that's a terrible disease. I I did see a a video of him somewhere. I think he was introducing the movie Pumping Iron to an audience, and uh, you could tell the disease had progressed really badly. Yeah, it's a terrible disease, and it just eats you up a little bit at a time. And yeah, unfortunately, George is such an active guy uh, all of his life, good athlete, and um, for the past, oh, I guess ten to ten to twelve years before he died, um, he just he couldn't do much of anything. Mm, yeah, that's terrible. Well, it's been fifty years since you guys first met, right? Uh, since you started working together, nineteen seventy-two. So it's amazing that much time has gone by. Boy, you know, it seems like <laughs> it seems like a week. Uh, yeah, but no, you're right. It's a long time. Yeah. So, Charles, uh, tell us how you and George met. Um, I know you wrote the book Stay Hungry, and I believe that was released in 1972. And from what I read, um, you released a, a couple short stories from the book, some anecdotes of, uh, of the bodybuilding section. And I think George, uh, George got a hold of that somehow, and then he contacted you. Is that correct? That's more or less correct. I was living in New Hampshire at the time, and I had an assignment from Sports Story for that magazine. And mm-hmm. I had pitched it to them and said I wanted to go down for the Mr. East Coast Contest, which was held in Holyoke, Massachusetts then. And I needed a photographer for it, and I'd heard about George. He lived in the same state that I did in New Hampshire. So I got in touch with him, asked if he wanted to take the photographs for the story. He said, sure. We went down, covered the story. Leon Brown won it at that point and um, got along well. And while we were down there doing that story, we uh, met Mike Katz and some other people and kept hearing about this young Austrian who had just moved to America and started his career over here. And uh, so then we got the, the story that we did for Sports Illustrated did very well. And it was the first one they'd ever done. They got a lot of great mail about it. So we decided to do another article and go down and meet Arnold at the Mr. I think Universe contest, maybe 1973, something like that. No, it wouldn't have been. I forget the year, John, but went down to the Brooklyn Academy, met him, and then everything took off from there. Yeah. So now you both, you and George kind of had uh, some experience with bodybuilding. I read some stuff about George and he, he grew up in several different places, but one of the places he grew up was Jamaica. And, of course, bodybuilding was always really popular out there. There's a lot of great bodybuilders that come from Jamaica. So I guess he was sort of introduced to the sport back then, and he saw some bodybuilding competitions. And you grew up in Alabama, and uh, a lot of that was the basis for your book, Stay Hungry, because you got introduced to bodybuilding as a teenager, right? 
That's correct. Boy, you, you've done your research. Um, <laughs> that's correct. George had some experience with it in Jamaica, and I started lifting weights when I was about 16 for football and uh, worked out in a gym in downtown Birmingham, got to know some amateur bodybuilders and thought it was an interesting subculture and nothing had really been written about it at the time. So I went to some competitions and um, and then wrote Stay Hungry uh, as a result of that experience. Was that your first book, Charles, Stay Hungry? It was. That was my first book. Wow. How old were you when you wrote that book? I think it was published when I was 29 or 30. Okay. Um, it was published when I was th- just after I turned 30 years old. Okay. So the character, uh, Joe Disco, that's in the uh, in the book. Well, no, it was uh, Joe Santos. I'm sorry. Joe Santos was in yeah, the but, book. Was that based on Joe Disco, who you wrote about a little bit in Pumping Iron? That's correct. It was based on uh, my great buddy, Joe Disco, who has also passed away. Um, mm. And it, it, it was interesting, John, because during the filming of, of the movie down here in Birmingham, Arnold was playing him. And yeah. uh, it was an interesting experience for both of them. And they got to, they got to be good buddies. Oh, okay. Really? That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So the term pumping iron that came from, uh, from Alabama, right? When you were, there was, wasn't there someone there that he used to pronounce it pumping iron. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. Right. My great friend, John, John Gunn and I used to, uh, we were both 16 and we were both playing football and we were both sort of on the thin side and we needed to beef up. So we had a friend named Fred Crabb who had some weights down in his basement and Gunn used to say, Gaines, let's go pump iron. A-R-N was pronounced it. That's the right. iron. And so we started started going down to Fred Crabb's place and then we graduated to John back. It's hard to hard to credit this, but back then in the uh in the uh, early 50s, bodybuilding was not on the map, really. I mean, you know, there was, yeah. uh, it, was, it was a subculture known by, participated in by the people who did it. But other than that, there were a lot of chivalrous, a lot of myths about bodybuilders that were lifted weights. You'd get muscle bound and you yeah. couldn't be a good athlete. It, um, it was a guy named, his last name was Cannon. Um, he was a Heisman Trophy winner in 1954, 55. Um, and uh, I forget his first name. He played, I think he played for LSU. And he worked out at this gym that, that Gunn and I went to. And he won the Heisman Trophy. He was the first football player to really seriously lift weights uh, in an effort to get bigger and stronger. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, there, there were a lot of myths about bodybuilding. One of my interests in writing Stay Hungry was to um, address those myths and try to correct them. Yeah. How did you first get involved in bodybuilding, Charles? I mean, you got involved as a teenager, right? You were like 14 or something? Yeah, I was about 16. And as I say, I started in an effort to get bigger for football. Okay. And then started going to this gym and met this group of guys who were, Joe Disco being the main one of them, but there were – maybe a half a dozen guys who were uh, participating in amateur 
uh, bodybuilding competitions. Joe Disco won Mr. Alabama at one point. And so I, I thought it was really interesting. And I started going around to uh, competitions with them and hanging out with them. And it was a lively, vivid, um, fascinating subculture that nobody knew anything about. And I thought it would make great material for a first novel. Yeah. Yeah, it really was a different world back then because, the you know, things have changed so much. The gyms are so much bigger now. And, uh, you know, I notice when I go to the gyms now, nobody really talks to anyone because everybody has their headphones on, they're on their phones, and they're kind of in their own, they're kind of in their own world where back then, because I, I started bodybuilding in the late 70s, so I can kind of relate to what you're saying. It was just a smaller gym, and everybody knew one another, and there was, you know, a good camaraderie, and you got to know some real characters in the gym. Absolutely, absolutely. And and you're right, back then there were no headphones, of course, and it was a much more social experience working out in a gym than it is now. Yeah, yeah. So you guys did this article for uh, Sports Illustrated, and um, I have the – I was looking at Randy Roach's book, uh, Muscle, Smoke, and Mirrors, and uh, he put some excerpts of that article in here, and I wanted to just read a little bit of it, if you don't mind. Because I thought one of the one of the things with you, Charles, you're a fantastic writer. I, you're one of my favorite authors. But um, that book, Pumping Iron, was so great because it exposed the world of bodybuilding to the general public. But you didn't do it like a muscle magazine would, you know, like a, a body like a writer for a bodybuilding magazine who is reading, you know, writing for an audience that understands the sport. You wrote this article based on this contest you saw for the audience out there, the general public that would read sports illustrated. And I thought that was really fascinating the way you conveyed it and the way you explained the world of bodybuilding to the general public. Well, that's, that's very perceptive of you. And that's exactly right. That's what I set out to do. Um, you know, because there were, there were plenty of people writing for the Weeder magazines and the bodybuilding uh, audience uh, yeah. What I wanted to, what I wanted to do with that article, and then later with "Stay Hungry," and then later with "Pumping Iron," was to try to bring bodybuilding to a much larger audience than it than it had at the time. I thought there was a much larger audience out there capable of appreciating bodybuilding that was not being reached by the Weeder magazines and so forth. And so I sort of took it on myself to try to do that. Yeah. Yeah, if you don't mind, I'm going to read this one little uh, excerpt from here. Say, before anything begins on stage at a body contest, the audience always knows who is there. You spot them as they walk in. Bodybuilders are often individualistic to the point of kinkiness, and they have a way of standing out. As Mike Katz says, they are the only athletes whose sport you can tell by looking at them. It's not just their size that accounts for this or even their fabulous proportions. It has more to do with an odd variety of self-consciousness a highly developed aesthetic sense of self that comes from having more or less the same relationship to your own body that an artist does to his artwork. I thought that was great. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, you know, that whole subject of the relationship of a bodybuilder to his body mm-hmm. being similar to that Phidias, say um, the fourth century BC Greek sculptor who uh, did all of these muscular bodies in sculpture it's a very interesting um, connection because, you know, good bodybuilders, the best bodybuilders, 
really are able to, as you know, um, to take on and you know, to put on and take off weight and inches and size on muscles and to virtually sculpt them um, to uh, create uh, an aesthetic concept that's in their mind. And that's a fascinating thing. There's no other place in, in, um, that I know of um, in the world where that's true, where you, where you right. see your body as a potential work of art and then proceed to make it into that. Yeah, it's a completely unique sport, unlike anything else. And even the way that it's looked at and judged, we're not judging by who can throw the javelin the farthest or who can lift the most weight. We're judging from an aesthetic point of view. And, uh, and, and the judging is so important to bodybuilding in order to pick the right person because you have to uh, look at a bodybuilder and pick the best combination of aesthetics and shape and muscle mass and definition and uh, that's that's why I think bodybuilding is just really like it's it's one of the most it is the most unique sport around it. That's quite true. And unique is the right word. It, uh, there's nothing nothing like it, which is what made it for me really interesting material to deal with as a writer because it is unique. And at the time that I started writing about it and George started photographing it, other than the bodybuilding magazines, there was no public consciousness of it and and no journalists out there trying to bring it to a wider audience right right um there's another part of that article and this is something i think is really important which is the posing and uh you know you, you said i think in the book pumping iron it's either the most beautiful thing you can witness or the most ridiculous thing you can witness based yeah. on how it's done right <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, you know, when, as you well know, when bodybuilding is done by um, somebody whose body is not ready to be on stage and or who can't pose, it's it's embarrassing. Yeah. 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 I remember the story. And yet, you and, yet, and, yet it, and yet when it's done by an Arnold or a Frank Zane or an Ed Corny, um, it's it's um, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's mesmerizing. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when we did our interview a couple of years ago, you were telling me this story about Kurt Vonnegut, the author, and he and him and his wife uh, went to a contest with you and they got to see That's Ed right. Corny and they were, he was just blown away by that. He was blown away by it. And so was his wife was a woman named Jill Kremitz and she was a famous photographer. And mm. at that time I had a lot of, female friends who were photographers for some reason in New York. Jill was one of them. The actress Candace Bergen was a great buddy of mine. And she was, before she was an actress, was a terrific photographer. And Mary Ellen Mark was another one. And all of these photographers, whether they were male or female, who had never seen bodybuilding before, knew nothing about bodybuilding. The first experience they had with it was always just mind-blowing for them. I mean, they yeah. thought it was the most overwhelming visual experience they'd ever had. So both Kurt and Jill felt that way at that contest that I took them to. All right. That was great. I always love talking to Charles Gaines. Definitely one of my favorite guests. All right. Our next clip is the great Lee Labrada, one of the best bodybuilders of the 1980s. Lee was the Mr. Universe, IFBB Mr. Universe winner back in 1985. 
And then he went on to become a great pro bodybuilder, really awesome, massless class for sure. Lee only weighed about 180 pounds. I think he's about five foot six, but he just presented a fantastic, one of the best physiques ever in the bodybuilding world and one of the greatest posers ever in the history of bodybuilding. So Lee had a fantastic career. So we are going to talk to Lee in this clip about how he decided when he turned pro that he was only going to stay pro for 10 years. And then we talk about the pressure that he had to get bigger as a professional bodybuilder. And then finally, we talked to Lee about how his posing routine was in the 1989 Mr. Olympia, which was one of the, in my opinion, one of the best posing routines ever. Here we go. Lee LeBron. Another thing I want to mention, Lee, is I, and I think I mentioned this before we did an interview a long time ago, was you said when you turned professional, you were going to be a pro for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And you That's stuck right. to that. You stuck to that uh, prediction. You stuck to your, your guns on that. I did. I've always been a planner. And I, I told uh, Robin when we got married, uh, I was uh, 26 at the time, I'm going to do this for 10 years and then I'm done. You know, I'm going to go as far as I can in 10 years. If I haven't done it in 10 years, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And lo and behold, um, you know, I, I won a lot of pro, pro competitions, placed in the Mr. Olympia in the top four, seven consecutive times. I never had lower than a fourth place finish yeah. in the Olympia. And uh, when it came time, you know, I just felt like the uh, like I had outgrown the sport, and the sport had outgrown me. I was ready to move on. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what impressed me too, Lee. Was not just that you said it at the beginning, but you stuck to it at the at the end of the ten years. Because we see so many bodybuilders who uh, they don't quit; they just keep going, even when their placing start to go down and their physique starts to decline. They still come back. They still come back, and, and you stuck with it and never came back. Well, and I wanted the people to remind, uh, to remember me uh, in my prime. Yeah. You know, rather than remember me uh, falling off and placing lower and lower and lower in competitions. Yeah, exactly. So the Mr. Olympia that year you didn't do. That was in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, what was the reason you stayed out of it that year? I thought that I needed yet another year to make improvements in my physique before I was ready to step on the Olympic stage. Okay. So then the first time was in 1987 in Gothenburg, Sweden. Yeah. And uh, I ended up taking third place in my first Olympia. Yeah, which was amazing. And before that, yeah. you did the um, Pro Mr. World, and I think Ron Love was the winner there, and you got second That's place. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, we t- uh, that was the uh, the Pro World Championships, and that's, that was the qualifier. Yeah. Now, how did yeah. you feel after taking second? Did you feel like you were just you weren't at your best there, and you knew it would be a different story at the Olympia? We, you know what? Uh, Ron Ron has, has a great physique, and yeah. he just. He deserved to win that day. Mm-hmm. I was definitely off. I, I had a water retention, and uh, but it was a good learning lesson because I was able to figure out a way to correct that by the time the Mr. Olympia came uh, later in the year. Okay. And that was in Germany, you said, right, Lee? Uh, the uh, Mr. Olympia was in Sweden that year, the 1987 Mr. Olympia. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So what were your feelings going into that? Now you're going up against Lee Haney, who had won it several times, and Gaspari had taken second the year before. So you're going up against some real mass monsters. And Mike Christian, I think that was his first Olympia, or second Olympia. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, again, it it was taking it to another level again. Um, And so I I didn't know how I would fare. Uh, But I, I tell you what, I was just delighted that I was stepping on the Mr. Olympia stage. Yeah. It was mortals that get to actually step on a Mr. Olympia stage. Yeah, that's true. And, and it was uh, something very special. I was stepping onto the stage where I had seen all of my childhood heroes, you know, the Larry Scotts, the Sergio Olivas, the Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Frank Zanes, and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so here I was, you know, and I stepped out onto the Olympia stage and 
went through my uh, went through my uh, uh, pose routine, and there's a million flash bulbs going off. <laughs> uh, yes, there were flash bulbs back then. Yeah, yes, right. those were film cameras. Right, right. Imagine that. So it was like being a, 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 a in front of a thousand strobes, and um, uh, and and boy, it just I, I knew I was someplace special. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was uh, humbling and uh, and at the same time very encouraging when I came uh, came in third. Yeah, yeah. How did that feel? I mean, you beat out Mike Christian, you beat out Barry Demay, you beat out Robbie, who was probably a, a guy you looked up to when you were growing up. Yeah. Well, again, it, it was just um, uh, it, I, it was just a very uh, very humbling and um, and uh, I felt uh, uh, you know just so much respect for these guys, you know. And, and I know, listen, John. I know that on any given day, those guys are all so good. Yeah. And yeah, and this is something that's lost on a lot of the fans, and even on the bodybuilders nowadays. Oh, I won because I worked harder than everybody else. Listen, okay. There's genetics. Yeah. Okay. There's hard work. Okay. There's diet. There's nutrition, and guess what? There's peaking. Yeah. You know, which you do the last couple of days with water balance and that right. sort of thing. Right. On any given day, these guys are so good that that it's just a few points that separate people. It, you know, one way or the other. Yeah. And and here's the other part. It's objective. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's 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 not objective. Subjective. It's yeah. subjective. Yeah. Okay. So in other words, it's not who crosses the finish line first. It is subjective. It's the opinion of a judging panel. <laughs> Change the judging panel. Right. Change the results. Right. I'm right. complaining about the judging panel because that same judging panel had me top four for seven consecutive years. Yeah. You know, yeah. the point that I'm trying to make. You know, is that um, you know uh, when you say who's the greatest of all time? That's like saying who's the greatest baseball player of all time, or yeah. who's the greatest football player of all time. There's many. Yeah. Greatest. Right. Right. Yeah. Leah, um, let me ask you about your opinion on bodybuilding because now you're in the pros. You're not even competing in weight classes anymore, so you're competing against these monsters. Like, and although it wasn't as much of a size game back then as it is now, but you were up against Lee Haney. You were up against Rich Gaspari, who was a big guy. So you stuck to your guns, and I think uh, in very similar to the way Frank Zane had his philosophy and Bob Paris, you know, you decided to develop your physique along the lines of an aesthetic physique, shapely physique. And I remember you did this one interview where you said, your body can only hold so much mass before you ruin the symmetry and the, and the beauty of the physique. And if you keep developing that mass without regards to that, and you always had you always had a mindset of that where you were developing your physique slowly and to where it looked good for your frame. That's exactly right. I think that's lost on guys. But I'll tell you an example that um, that uh, many of you will be able to relate to. If you ever see some of these pictures that are posted nowadays on Instagram where they've actually taken Photoshop mm-hmm. and they've actually like morphed and made you know ginormous thighs or ginormous arms. You yeah. Know, yeah. You know, and, and on one of the top bodybuilders. And you realize that it's grotesque. Yeah, it doesn't it look doesn't, better. Doesn't look good. <laughs> right. You know, sometimes more is not better. Sometimes more is just more. Yeah. You know, and it actually ruins the the natural lines. The uh, the uh, the way that your eye looks at a physique, and you know, there's 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 a lot to that. You know, and and uh, it has to do with proportions. You know, that are set in nature. And once you go past that point. You know, it's like you can't put your finger on it. It's hard to quantify, but it just doesn't look right. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't look aesthetic. It doesn't look pretty, Mm -hmm. you know. And so, um, you know, and I understand that bodybuilding is about putting muscle on, you know, but it's not just about putting muscle on. If it was, it would be called mass building, not bodybuilding. If you're building a body, a body has many more aspects than just mass. 
symmetry, proportion, muscularity, the way you know that, that things are put together, the, the skeletal structure, mm-hmm. you know, the insertions. There's there's a lot to bodybuilding. Yeah. Well, credit to you that you stuck with that and you did that because I would think someone in your position, you're in the Mr. Olympia, you're a top professional bodybuilder, you're on uh, magazine covers, and the emphasis or the uh, pressure has to be on you. You got to get bigger. You got to get bigger. But yeah. you did. You and, stuck and, with and, that. You know, John, thank you for that. You know, I think as time went on, they did. The judges didn't know what to do with me. You know, because here, you know, here I am, an apple in a sea of oranges. You mm-hmm. know, so to speak. You know, because I was different than everybody else. And I wasn't playing the size game, you know. So, um, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where, you know, they have to make a call, you know, as to what type of type of physique they prefer. Yeah, yeah. But also credit to the judges back then because they did seem to award that. Like they gave uh, top placings to someone like McAway or Zane before him. Or sure. Yourself, right. You know. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. I mean, I think your, your routine that year is still, as I said, it's regarded as one of the best routines ever, I think. Thank you very much. I worked very hard on that routine. Uh, I think that that was uh, what uh, people call the Matador routine. Mm-hmm. And uh, if memory serves me correctly, uh, I think that, that would have been the year. And um, uh, that uh, particular year, I actually worked with a, a couple of Spanish choreographers. Oh, really? Uh, when, I, when I was in Madrid on that uh, that, bull, that bullfighting piece of it. Um, and um, and they gave me some really uh, neat ideas. I love the music, you know, uh, yeah. because... Uh, it's a, a, a Spanish piece, and of course I've got a Spanish heritage, and so I decided to uh, uh, bring that together. Um, John, I worked very, very hard on that routine, yeah. you know, and and it was always a passion of mine to try to, uh, to innovate whenever I did uh, my posing routines and to try to bring something new and exciting and fresh to the audience. You know, instead of the um, uh, you know the the same old boring mandatory poses and and, and that type of thing, because that's where I think that uh, uh, the physique uh, becomes art is mm-hmm. um, uh, during a, a pose routine, especially a well constructed pose routine like that. Yeah. Um, so, and I always knew that I had to have. Uh, all of the details, because I wasn't going to beat the other guys on size. Mm-hmm. You know, at 100, at 185 or 190 pounds, I was given always given away a 40 to 50 pound advantage. Yeah. Sometimes more than 50 pounds. Yeah. And so I knew that I had to I had to have perfect conditioning, perfect skin color, perfect poise, perfect posing. You know, I just I had to check all the boxes. You know, otherwise I would get lost in the shelf. Yeah. You know, so I, I always knew that that was important, and I always put a lot of effort into it. Yeah. And who would have known that back then in the 80s that the Internet would come along, computers would come along, and that yes. routine would live for history, you know, live on forever, you know? Oh, I'll tell you, it's, what's amazing, John, is how many of the younger bodybuilders uh, have reached out to me um, and, and, and uh, you know, uh, commented on that particular post routine that particular year, asked me about the music and what I, in fact, so much so that I ended up putting together a, a video series, of, a posing video series called Posing with My Pro. Oh, really? A nine, yeah, nine part series is free. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, you can find it on uh, LeeLeBrockLeBrockLeBrockLeBrockLeBrockLeBrockLeBrockLeBrockLeBrockLeBrockLeBrockLeBrockLeBrockLeBrockLeBrockLeBrockLeBrockLeBrockLeBrockLe
And you know, at the end of the day, Hank Ligini, um, uh, Ligini arguably is the greatest uh, bodybuilder of the games. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I think, you know, I think with Apis or Olivia wins, you know, they could claim that, right? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, um, you know uh, regardless of how I felt, um, he was there. And, um, you know, I, I, um, I had a, uh, a huge response from the Italian crowd in Remedy that year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, um, um, you know, I, I want to say that uh, I was uh, uh, definitely one of, one of the crowd favorites, let's say. Yeah. All right. Great hearing from Lee LeBron. And as I mentioned, I got to see him last week in Tampa. So really, really a class act. If you've never met Lee LeBron, just a really fantastic gentleman and a real credit to the sport of bodybuilding. All right. This next clip is one of my favorite interviews, Danny Padilla. Danny was one of the greatest bodybuilders in the history of the sport, one of the most proportionate and massive short bodybuilders ever. Danny was only five foot two. He won the 1977 IFBB Mr. Universe and really made his impact on the pro career. He didn't really get the respect, I think, that he deserved, particularly in the 1981 Mr. Olympia, where even today when people talk about it, a lot of people feel Danny should have won that show. Danny was in superb shape in 1981. He was shredded to the bone. And along with that great proportions and size and symmetry that he had, he was really something to see. He also has a great personality. Danny is a really funny guy. He doesn't take things too seriously. And he's really, really a great interview. And this part of our interview that we did, Danny talks first about Sergio Oliva, how he thought he was one of the best bodybuilders ever. And then we go into the discussion of the 1979 Night of the Champions, where Danny scored a perfect score, a 300 score, but somehow was still beaten in the pose down by Robbie Robinson. Here we go. Yeah. To me, one of the greatest physiques ever was was Sergio Oliva. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that guy was not human. Right, right. I mean, and he was as strong as he looked. You know, he, he had little waistline, huge quads, tremendous lats, arms, show. I mean, he had it all. Even Arnold admired him. Arnold yeah. knocked one time to the Shrine Auditorium to go see Sergio. And we were <laughs> told, if you go there, you'll get – if you go to the, that contest – You'll you'll be yeah. banned from the IBB. Him and I snuck in to watch it. That's how much he thought Sergio was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. What was the first, when was the first time you saw Sergio? I I saw Sergio because uh, they used to have all those IFBB shows in New York, right? Yeah, really when, yeah. when they had first Olympia, his first Olympia. You saw his first Olympia? Wow! Yeah. When I first saw him, I was a kid. Yeah, and I couldn't believe he was tremendous. I know. Yeah. Nothing I've never seen, and you know, and. He really he he didn't diet hard, you know. He just no. trained. Yeah. He, he had a great base from all that Olympic lifting. Yeah. So he just developed a complete as a, a physique as complete as you can get it. His posing could have been better, but he he was just to me he was the man. I know. Yeah, I I grew up in Chicago, and um, you know he was living out there, and I would see him at contest, you know, with the split sleeve shirt, you know, and all the gold medallions and stuff, and. I tell people today, I'm like, you had to see him in person to understand. He was when he unbelievable. Room, when he walked in the room, everybody looked. Yeah. He was that guy. Yeah. That's how good he was. Yeah. He was freaking, he was a freak. Yeah. And him and I got along pretty good, but he always argued with Joe, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I never forget the one time uh, freaking, uh, we were in, I think it was in, uh, where were we? We were not Chicago. We were in, uh, 
not San Diego. We were in some show in California. Might have been Frisco. And Joe Weider sitting there. I'm sitting with Sergio. We're talking. And and then Joe Weider comes over and they're talking. And he was saying to me in Spanish, this guy, you got to watch him. You know, he, he just, he was, <laughs> if, if he had been a little more down, you know, level off, he probably would have done so much better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was a very proud man, you know. Right. And I'll never forget a bodybuilder came over and and we're him and him and I are talking and he says, Look at the legs on this bodybuilder and the kids showing the legs and so he says, get the hell out of here. We're eating now. What's the matter with you bunch of <laughs> you know what? <laughs> so Joe Joe's like, What's wrong with this guy, Don? Tell him to take it easy. I said, He can't help himself. <laughs> but he was just a proud guy, and he, like I said, no, not get the hell out of here. <laughs> that poor bodybuilder didn't know where to jump. Right. Yeah. Hey, let me take you back a little bit, Dan. We skipped over a couple of the shows. Um, tell me about the 78 Olympia. That was your first Olympia. That was in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, you did pretty good. You got sixth place in that show. Well, you know what? I, I, I was training, and I said, what are my chances here? You know, do I really have a chance? Are they going to let a short guy ever do well? Yeah. So I, I trained pretty hard. And I, it, to my surprise, I I did very well compared yeah. to top six. Yeah. You know, top six is, is no nothing to be ashamed of. Right. You know, and back, you know, and like I tell guys back in the day there to be a pro, you had to be a Mr. America or a Mr. Universe winner. Mm hmm. Right. Right. Today, I got guys that tell me the pros. I go, you're in the IPB. No, I'm in the Joe Moke show. Well, where'd you win it? I, in the high school on Ridge Road West there. He's <laughs> got a pro card. So, right. you know, right. not the kind of guy that says, well, congratulations. You know, I'm not going to demote Yeah, yeah. Because he's so proud of his pro card. So they right. give him out like M&M Peanuts now, you know. But <laughs> right. I, right. I guess it's a way to make money because you got to pay to have the card, right? Right, right. So yeah. The association makes money, but yeah. yeah, that was for me. It was it was like an enlightenment because I'll be honest with you, I never took this thing serious hmm. like I could have. And yeah. Joe would say to me all the time, "Aren't you high? You could be the best of the world." I said, "For what, Joe? They don't let little guys win." Right. I, 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 I tell you what, I did a show in New York. I'll never forget it. Uh, Night of the Champions. Oh, yes, I wanted to ask you about that. I don't know yeah. if you remember back then. Yeah, yeah. Guys were getting three hundred. Yeah, they're giving points, right? It, it was like it was like a, a gymnastic where they hold the card up. Yeah, yeah. I'm coming from Europe, okay, and Joe's taking pictures of Mike and Robbie at the Gold's Gym. Okay, not not the original, but the second. It was on Second Street now. Santa Monica, yeah. Santa Monica, uh, Ken Sprague's gym. And so I came in because I had just done a bunch of seminars and a tour, and I wasn't really in great shape. And I said to Joe, what's going on? Oh, they got that show, the Night of the Champions in Beacon Theater, but hell, you'll never be ready for that. <laughs> and I said, so you're not going to take pictures of me, you know, busting, busting the chops? Yeah. Just, why am I going to take pictures? You ain't got a prayer. And Rodney <laughs> says to him, why are you saying that to him, Joe? That guy's nuts. Don't do that. You're going to piss him off. <laughs> so I said, all right, Joe, we'll see. We will see. And that was another show. I did 21 days of starvation. Really? I, 21 days. I would wake up with saliva on my pillow. That's how bad it was. And I got in pretty damn good shape. 
Yeah, yeah. And so I, I'm going to New York, and I'm flying, and I get there, and on the way there, I'm eating Snickers because I hadn't had carbs in 21 days. Right. And so Joe's like, Bonnie, are you in shape? What, what are you eating that shit for? <laughs> Joe, I don't know. We'll see what happens. I'm not sure. You know, Joe, I'm scared. I wasn't scared. I was ready. <laughs> and and so, I, I, you know, and at the time, I said, all these guys, pros, the exodus and all this crap, I'm going to, I'm going to pose a short people. <laughs> yeah, that was the show, right? That was the yep. And yeah. so I get out there and I get out there. And so I get into the back room and, a, and, a, and Nazaro comes up to me, Joe Nazaro. I don't know if you remember him, but sure. Yeah. Yeah. In New York. And he looked at me and he says, you know, Dan, I'm going to kick your ass here tonight. And I said, Joe, put a little oil on my back. Cause that's all you're doing here. tonight." <laughs> <laughs> so, uh. <laughs> and, and so I, you know, I just sat there relaxed, and, and you know, at the last minute, I pumped up because the theory that Arnold and I would have was, if you pump up too much, as you come out there, you shrink. I, we would pump just a little bit before so that we were all full and the guys were shrinking. Right, right. That was, that was our concept. Yeah. But make a long story short, uh, you know, I I was ready, and and so of course Joe came in the back. Says, oh my God. You look tremendous, you know, you should sign a contract. I said, Joe, after the show, we'll talk about contract. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so right now I got to get ready to win. I, I want to win the show. So I get out there and I get out there and all of a sudden you hear, short people got nobody. And I went like that. <laughs> and the audience went nuts. That's right. <laughs> and they said, little eyes, the that went beep, beep, beep. The audience, it was like tremendous. Yeah. I got a stand ovation. Really? I had to come back. And I'll never forget, Lawyer Cole was there. And he's, and then right after me was uh, uh, Ed Corning. Oh, his okay. tremendous yeah, I did yeah. it my way. So I'll never forget the guy said, we got to pose after that. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I won every round. And I scored 300 and lost. So how did that happen? In the post? Well, here's what they did. It, what people don't remember is they never did pose downs before. Right. So they came to us and says, look, we're going to have a new thing called Pose Down, and it's just for the audience. It counts for nothing. Okay. It counts for nothing. So, all right. So, me and Robbie get out there. We're posing down. After the third or fourth pose down, I said, this is bullshit. I know what they're doing here. Now, I scored a perfect score and lost. And then they said the reason they lost because Danny stopped posing. He walked away. Oh, man. That was the excuse they had. And so, so, so I, how, did they, how did they do that back then? I don't care what anybody says. I won it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So they, took the, score from the, they, they took the score from the prejudging, and then they added a couple points from the pose down, right? And then Robbie. No, because, but no, not at all, because when the show was over, Robbie had 298, I had 300. Hmm. And I still lost. What did they say? How could they play that? I didn't even bother. Wow. Hmm. I packed my bags and went home and went back to the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> That's that was, you know, for me, I tried. I also I gave it a good try. Yeah. All right. And I continued my discussion with Danny here. Of course, I had to ask him about the 1981 Mr. Olympia, probably the most controversial Mr. Olympia ever. And Danny was a big part of that contest because, as I mentioned, he was in unbelievable shape. And a lot of people thought he should have won. He ended up fifth place. So here's Danny's thoughts 
on the 1981 Mr. Olympia? Oh, Dan, you never get cut up enough. You're huge. Mm-hmm. You never get cut. Right. I don't think you can get cut up. I yeah. said, all right, I'll show them. <laughs> and also, my motivation was to prove to people that you didn't need all the protein that everybody said you did. You needed the carbs and the fats more than the, than the proteins. Okay. So it was just, uh, you know, for the hell of science, I said, let me stand on 100 grams of car- or protein and never go past that and see how good I can do. Okay. And and so at the end, you know, I switched it all around, but I just wanted to see how cut can I get and maintain a good weight. Like I said, on a, on a Monday, I weighed about 159, 160. I ate all the way up. Wow. I, you, you know how you gain weight. So how do people think I lost weight eating Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Right. I, I had to gain 20, 20 pounds. <laughs> you, know, you blow up like a balloon. Yeah. But I kept getting more cut. As I ate, I got more cut. Right, right. Body exploded. Wow. And so when I got on stage, and I didn't even have to pose. I would just make a fist, and everybody would go, holy cow, what's that? Right. And then i walk out of the line and stand up to Franco, and they get pissed and send me back. <laughs> yeah. You can't do that. Then I did it again. Yeah, and I threw a pose, and everybody got out of line, threw stutter poses, and, and they said, "If you do that again, we're going to deduct the point." And I said, "Who cares? I'm not going to win, anyways." <laughs> Did you think it was going to be uh, set up for Franco way before you went in it? Well, people said it was. People said yeah. he it's set up for Franco. That's why I'm right. Right. So I said, "Look, Joe Weider doesn't fix shows because he owns everybody, anyways." Yeah. Where wins, he's got their picture. So why would he do that? He would never do that. Right. So for me, I said, I don't care if it's set up. I want to compete against Franco. I'll never be able to compete against Franco again. Yeah. And that was my motivation. Mm-hmm. Period. Right. I didn't care who won the show. If I got lucky and got one, right, but but I didn't. But at the same time, though, you know, years later, people still compare those pictures. Yeah, was, they're still they tell me, well, Tom Platt should have won. Yeah. Come on, Tommy's body, he looked great, but it was boxy. Yeah. You know, he, but he's, I thought he beat Chris for sure. Yeah. I thought Roy Callender could have moved up with me. Yeah. Franco should have been maybe fourth yeah. that night. Or fifth. If, you know, and there was other guys out of the lineup that looked tremendous too that never, you know, they kind of got screwed a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, for for me, you know, I was saying, wow, they gave me fifth. I thought they were going to throw me right out the lineup. Yeah. But I, you know, I got the fifth. So got to take what you can get. Yeah. And, you know, I never cried after shows because every, everybody will here. I should have won this show. <laughs> I got screwed. There isn't one. It's like the guys that go to jail. I'm innocent. Right. <laughs> <laughs> These bodybuilders. Right. I, I should have won that show. I should have won this show. I don't know what that, ju- you know, it's like, give me a break. Yeah. You know, when you get on stage, it's just an opinion. Yeah, right, right. No, that's the reality. And no matter how good you is, it's their opinion that night, this guy looks better. And that's yeah. it. Be it true or not. So, I again, I never took the sport the way I should. Serious. What do you think of um, uh, the booing at that contest? Because it started with you. I mean, they gave Joseph Wilcox six. That was okay. But then once they announced you fifth, man, whew, that place went up for I'll never forget, when they called me fifth, they booed and they threw papers and they got up and walked out. See, what people don't realize, 
by the time that show the the the, the award, the place was empty. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. The place I, was empty. I was there. It, I, it was empty. Nobody yeah. there. And Franco was there's no audience for Franco to get his trophy with. <laughs> right. Very few people. Right. Just right. Arnold and Joe who sat there in shock, you know. Yeah. Joe was in shock. Yeah. He was upset. Yeah. Trust me when I tell you. I know. I won't even repeat what he said. I won't even repeat what he said. All I can tell you, what he said made Arnold create his own show. Let's put it that way. <laughs> All of a sudden, Arnold's classic came from that because that's how upset Joe was. Yeah. So, uh, he, you know, I remember him saying, you guys destroyed my show. What is, you know, and audience got, and then when I walked out to go to the hotel, all these people were behind me. There had to be a thousand people saying, oh, Danny, please, are you okay? I said, I'm fine. Uh, you want us to get Franco? I said, are you nuts? <laughs> they, they wanted to fucking attack Franco. <laughs> Poor Frank, one of the best bodybuilders in the world. So I said, no. So I went to my room. I laid down and my, my buddy Larry was there and, uh, I said, I just got it. I'm tired. I got to take a nap. I lay down for 20 minutes. I said to the bake, let's get up and go eat. I opened the door and all these people in the hall. The lady says, I made you a carrot cake. I heard you like carrot cake. Oh, wow. Wonderful. I put it in there. I appreciate it. And they kept saying, are you okay? I said, I'm fine. The show's over. I got things to do tomorrow. And I ain't going to be crying over a show. I said, I was here to compete. I competed. I did the best that I could. And it's over. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to cry. And you never heard me cry. No. As a matter of fact, uh, I don't know how long ago, a week or two after that, I went home uh, and I flew back to L.A. to go visit, take a break. And on a, they had done a slideshow of the Olympia. And so they got through with the slideshow. I got there too late. And I said, what's going on? He goes, oh, we had a slideshow. They said, we had a slideshow. We put it all away. And then Arnold looked at me and said, some people thought you should have won. I said, what do you think? Where was the slideshow at that? It was at the World Gym. It was like a private show with Joe Gold. Was it in L.A. after the show? Okay, L.A. after the show. And they they had like John Balick had these slides, I guess, of the show. Okay, okay. And and then I never got to see it. But Hmm. uh, Arnold said, some people thought maybe you should have won. I said, what did you think? He goes, I, I'm not a judge. <laughs> you know, he was for Franklin. So, you know, I never, yeah, yeah. Buddies. I would have done the same thing probably. Right, so right. I, you know, it's look, we all know we take chances. We compete bodybuilding. Right. And when some, you're going to lose some. And yeah. I knew for me, just the idea that I could compete with heavyweights, you know, yeah, um, that was an honor in itself. Yeah. All right. Danny, great interview. Love talking to Danny. If you haven't heard that interview, you got to go back to our website, bodybuildinglegendshow.com, and check out the podcast page, and you'll see the full two-part interview with Danny Padilla. It's definitely worth a listen. All right, our last clip here to wrap up part one of our sixth anniversary show is an interview I did with both Boyer Co. and Roy Callender, where we did a tribute to Chris Dickerson, who just passed away And Chris passed away at the end of 2021. So we did this interview in the early 2022. And Boyer, of course, used to compete with Chris way back in the AAU days. And then their rivalry continued all the way through the IFBB when they were both professional bodybuilders. So Boyer knew Chris very, very well. And also Roy Callender, who was also a professional bodybuilder in the 1980s, along with Chris. 
They competed against each other many times. And Roy's relationship started with Chris back in the Nava Universe days, back in the 60s, the late 60s, early 70s, when Roy and Chris used to compete. And joining us also for the interview was Bill Nilan, who is a judge out here in Florida. And Bill was a really close personal friend of Chris. So I had all three of them on the show to talk about their memories of the great Chris Dickerson. Here we go. Thanks for joining me, guys. Well, boy, why don't we uh, start with you? Like I said, uh, you and Chris go way back. Uh, do you remember the year that you met when you first started competing with him? Well, it was much further back than you remember. I first, <laughs> met, I first met Chris the night I won the Teenage Mr. America. Oh, wow. That was back in 1966. Okay. I didn't even think at that time Chris had even started competing yet. I mm. met him because he was good friends with Dennis Tenorino and Joe Bender, and I knew both of those. Dennis had won the year before I did at, at the Teenage Miss America, so he was there. And then Joe Bender, you know, was a longtime friend. I knew him well, and that's how I got introduced to Chris. So it's so uh, that that goes back to 1966. Wow, where was that contest, boy? It was in West Patterson, New Jersey. Okay. I never will forget because I arrived in West Patterson and they had a big riot going on at the time. It was, <clears throat> you know, it was a big deal about, uh, oh, you know, voting rights and then the, the blacks and the whites, something. <clears throat> I arrived in the middle of that, but somehow or another, I managed to get to the hotel. I mean, I'm, I'm this country kid from Louisiana. I had the first time ever been to New Jersey. Uh, arrived in the middle of it and, and then it's like about 105 degrees too. So, right. uh, yeah. But anyway, that's that's uh, the first time I was introduced to Chris. Okay. And then um, your first contest together, do you remember that? I remember you guys were in the 1969 Mr. America that you won. He was in that, right? Was there one before yeah, that? I mean, we, we were competing before that and the first contest I remember we competed against one another was uh, was in 67. It was at the Junior Mr. America. Okay. I think that was in, uh, hmm, I think it was maybe in York, Pennsylvania. But okay. I, I do remember D Dennis Tenorino, myself, and Chris all stayed in the same room. Oh, wow. <laughs> you, you know, they, nobody paid for anything. So right. I was in college. I had enough money to get a, a plane ticket up there, and then we split the hotel room. So we all <laughs> stayed in the same uh, same room. And, and I think Dennis, I believe Dennis won the Junior Mr. America contest that time. Yeah. What did you think of uh, Chris's physique when you first saw him? Well, Chris, he always, the first thing that stands out, he had these fantastic calves. Yeah. You know? And he was always always in shape. I mean, he, he was not an exciting bodybuilder, but he was always very, very well conditioned and a polished poser and always a gentleman. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, uh, what I, what I really like about those old stories about you guys is like you were saying, you guys stayed in a hotel room together and everything. And there was really a, you know, that sense of camaraderie, I guess, in the 1960s where you could all hang out together and compete with each other and stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. As Roy, as Roy mentioned, people were a lot more helpful to one another. Oh, yeah. There, there was no jealousy. You just 
just worked out. You just want to do as good as you could. And mm. the next guy beat you, that was fine. You know, it was, Big deal. The, the, the thing is this, and, and maybe Roy feels the same way. To be honest, all the years I competed, I never had a great deal of respect for the judges. Because you stand up on the stage, you know, put your heart and soul in preparation. And the judges are kind of just lackadaisical looking around joke. They weren't really paying attention. They had no desire or no understanding of all of the effort that you put into that. So I just just kind of accepted whatever I got and went about my business. (laughs) (laughs) But I I think they like being called judge. Yeah. The only thing I wanted to do is if I knew I looked better than the last contest I was in, I was happy. As long as I was was improving, that's what I cared about. Yeah. Was that when they were uh, still doing the uh, weightlifting and the powerlifting before the bodybuilding? Did they use uh, some of the judges from that? From oh, yeah. that well, back in that, now, this is a little bit different from when, when Roy was competing. In the AAU, they, they, they used the same judges in Olympic lifting competition what? as they did in bodybuilding. As a matter wow. of fact, they wouldn't even start the bodybuilding competition until the weightlifting was completely over with. Right, so right. Judges, they didn't really care. You know, you would just, I, I don't even know if they knew anything about bodybuilding. Yeah, right. 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 Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. Hmm. It was so me. different then. It was so different. And boy, I'll tell you, too, we had to travel to the shows because they were far and few between. It was usually at a YMCA. And we wait around all day till the powerlifting was over. They'd come out and they'd sweep the chalk off the gym floor. They'd set up the makeshift <laughs> stage. Not kidding. They'd hang a light off the basketball hoop. And then 23 guys had come out about 11 at night. Yeah. Oh, weight classes, no music, no nothing. And I'm looking out at the judges. Some of the powerlifters' wives. Some of the powerlifters' wives' state director. And I'm saying, these are the bodybuilding judges? They had 150 pounds. I never got looked at. Yeah. You know, the guy no. with the big arms, big chest, kind of weak legs, big and smooth would win. Yeah. Every time. <laughs> front double biceps, rear double biceps, front latch spread, rear latch spread. Ass. This is funny. Okay. Call out the first top five. See you next year. Yeah. This is funny. What, this is oh, funny. What, what just remember, happened? I can remember the, the first teenage Miss America contest that was the prejudging for bodybuilding didn't get started until three o'clock in the morning. Come on. Sat around all day long. It was in it was in Pittsburgh. Okay. No, no, excuse me, in Philadelphia. So we go through I mean you you fall into sleep, you know, it's like three o'clock in the morning. And then you got to be back down there at nine o'clock the next morning for the interview. That's when they had to prove your athletic ability. Yeah. That was in the AAU. Finally they did away with all of that. No. Um, you see, in, particularly in the South, that's all you had. There was no IFBB. That was basically just the East Coast. Okay. I, I recall they had a lot of contests. I can remember wow. one summer, essentially they had a contest every weekend. I competed throughout the summer. I competed, geez, this is going back in the, in the 60s. This was before I got into the national competition. I could okay. do 12 shows. I went in a contest every weekend for three months. You know? <laughs> How do you I guys do that? It was all fun to me, you know? <laughs> every, every 
every weekend we'd go three, four hundred miles and compete in a contest. Yeah. My God. Yeah. My my history pales in comparison. My experience doesn't even come close. <laughs> yeah, boy, I don't know if you remember, I, I, I interviewed uh, Ellington Darden, and uh, he was telling me he met you when you were 17 years old. Yeah. He was oh, telling me that story about, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't believe your size at 17. And he said, you blew everybody away. I think it was Mr. Texas, wasn't it? Wasn't that Mr. Texas? Oh, yeah, it was Mr. Texas. It was in Dallas. But once again, you had to wait till that's, that's the only reason I got into powerlifting because I just got tired of hanging around all day doing mm-hmm. nothing. So I'd occupy myself with, with doing the bench press, the squat, and deadlift till it was time to compete in the bodybuilding. Yeah. Wow. I made a lot of friends. I made a lot of friends with uh, different powerlifters. Wow, man. You're yeah. something awesome. That's something else, man. Wow. Now, now, Roy, you didn't have that experience, right? Because you were competing oh, no. in Barbados, right? And then you were competing. Oh, in- oh no, I'm uh, no, I'm here listening, man. With uh, I'm here listening. The only experience I had I was going to save the part of it. I expanded in my book. I expanded my book. Um, this guy in Barbados, we copied. I was a kid growing up. Albert Beckles was the was the kingpin, mm-hmm. and uh, they were they they copied the AAU rules. Everybody was Hoffman this and Hoffman that, and they said, and I remember quite with a lot of big smile on my face. Now I wondered where's how stupid we were. <laughs> they were talking about competing, and uh, the, the guy said, "But what is the criteria for judging for Mister Barbados?" And the judges came out well, complexion. Um, Skin tone and this and that and the other. You know what they meant by complexion? They mm. read it in the magazine to mean the lighter your skin is, the better chance you had. Really? <laughs> yes. Wow. I'm serious. They understood complexion to mean that. Uh, that was, I was only about 15, 16 at the time. And uh, I never had any desire to compete. And like I said, I'm black as hell. I, I have no chance. <laughs> but, when I, when I got to England, now I realized what complexion meant. They, right. they, they, nobody ever asked him in Barbados to interpret what it meant because if they had these skin lightening products, they thought that if you have a lighter complexion, you'll be a better bodybuilder. It's, that's, it's, it's hard to explain. It's funny coming from a place like Barbados, but that is part of the history. Hmm. Wow. Albert, Beckles, Albert Beckles changed that. Yeah. We were also talking talking about Chris. That, that's a good segue into uh, he was the first African American to win the Mister America contest. And uh, as you mentioned, Roy, over in uh, America, we had a, they had a lot of bad decisions in the AU where there was uh, African American competitors who should have did better and they didn't in the AU. And Chris was really the first one to break that barrier, and he was the first one to win the AU Mister America title as an African American. Oh, but those were the times, you know, you, you know, those were the times. I think there are times you can look back on like any other aspect of life. Bodybuilding was just one tiny part of it. But those mm-hmm. were the times. Yeah. And uh, Chris won because he just happened to be the best one on that day. Um, he happened to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, were, there were no weaknesses. So his time had come. He broke some ice. He broke some barriers, opened up a way for a few of us. Um, yeah. Those, those were the times, man. That's something that bodybuilding can look back on with a little bit of pride, like anything else, like anything else, like baseball, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's, bodybuilding had to pay its fair share as well. Yeah. 
Oh, you're right about that because there were a number of black bodybuilders, incredible bodybuilders before Christmas that should have won the Mr. America contest. Mm. Right. Back in history, you look at uh, Arthur Harris. Arthur Harris. Incredible, oh, yeah. Incredible. incredible. And, and without a doubt, without a doubt, because I was there at, uh, this was in 1966, at the Junior Mr. America, that Sergio Oliva won, hands down. He was yeah. so good. If he would have never posed, if he would have just walked on stage, he would have won. And yeah. I had that fortunate experience. That was the first national contest I ever entered. I had to pose after him. So <laughs> I'm throwing and watching him pose. When my turn comes, I, I don't know what I'm doing on stage. I'm trying to <laughs> my routine. He won hands down. Now, a couple of weeks later was the Miss America contest. He lost. Bob Guider won. Yeah. But there was no oh. way Hoffman was going to let a black man win. I don't care. <laughs> oh, no, no. The shame of it all. Yeah. It's part of, part of the history, man. Yeah. A- why, do you think, why do you think it was that Chris was the first one to win? I think the time had come. I, think it, I just think it was the time. It, it, yes, you know it. It, it was. Uh, he was good, just like Roy said. He was mm-hmm. good. He was polished. He 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 presented himself well. Yeah, polished. Uh, and and he was also he was educated. I always thought that Sergio would have done so much better had he had the ability to be educated. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. Chris was so well spoken. Yeah, and, and that, you're right. That's that's what made the difference, you know. All right. Rest in peace, Chris Dickerson. We still think about you, Chris. All right. So that's it for part one of our sixth anniversary show for the Bodybuilding Legends podcast. We will be back next week for part two of our sixth anniversary show. I got a lot more clips I want to share with you guys. Thanks again for supporting the show. Again, I want to thank all our Patreon sponsors for being such a big part of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast. I could not do this show without you guys. And if anyone out there wants to help support the Bodybuilding Legends podcast by becoming a Patreon donor themselves, I will have the link listed below in the description of this podcast. Or you can go to bodybuildinglegendsshow.com, which is our official website, and you'll see the link right there in the upper right-hand corner. All right, guys, thanks again for all your support. Six years of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast, and we'll keep it going. And that is it for today's show. We will be back next week with another episode of our sixth anniversary show. Until then, train hard, stay safe. We'll see you guys next week. Take care. 